0: What sort of image does the phrase virtual power plant conjure for you? By definition, it's a power station that isn't the electricity generator you have when you don't actually need one. It's a slightly confounding idea, sounds more like something out of a Blade Runner movie than real life, but we're building them in Australia right now.
1: In the industry, there's a a phenomenal shift in understanding that we need to look towards the future.
0: Hi, I'm Adam Morton and welcome to The Innovators, a rewired podcast for ARENA the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. Today we're going to meet Bruce Thompson from Greensync, an energy software company based in Melbourne that's helping push the boundaries of electricity grids by aiming to make them more flexible and decentralised and has recently embarked on a new project born in ARENA's Innovation Lab.
1: Welcome, Bruce. Thanks, Adam.
0: We're going to talk about future tech and the future shape of the grid. But before we get to that, I'd like to ask you a little about the path you took to get here, working at the cutting edge of energy. In a way, your career has kind of followed the shift of the environmental movement and clean energy concerns from the relative margins into the mainstream, the commercial mainstream over the last 20 years. And you yourself started as a green campaigner. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing and why you got into
1: it? Yeah, sure. Look, I I studied um, mechanical engineering at university and And in the day, some 20 years ago, um, was concerned about this thing called climate change, but also really passionate about renewable energy. Um, It was the time uh, where there was a number of uh, uranium mining developments that were opening up in in the country. And so I, as an engineer, was looking at this climate change thing and said, from an engineering perspective, maybe nuclear is is an option. It uh, has low emissions or zero emissions as one of the key arguments for its replication. I actually got involved with some environmentalists who had uh, a more complicated uh, result for, for that type of technology, really. Looked at the impacts of mining on Indigenous communities around the impacts of the of those developments uh, on the local ecosystem from where they're mined, then right through to the end of that chain in terms of the the waste, the um, radioactive waste that's left as a legacy from those projects. So um, I got involved in the Jabaluka uh, uranium proposal, which was in Kakadu National Park, and um, opposition to a radioactive waste dump in South Australia. And during that, that period of time, it was a quite a formative experience because you need to, to look at, as we're proactively looking to sustainable development, understand the consequences and the opportunity costs as we move along in maintaining some of those uh, those legacy uh, fossil or toxic fuels from for our energy system. Along the way, I was fortunate to work with a lot of fantastic people, people who take on leadership roles uh, across industry and in politics today, uh, and worked with some amazing um, Aboriginal communities that sort of led um, a strong sort of Connection to their land and the proactive and sustainable development for their communities.
0: Yeah, right. Okay. So you're based in the top end for a period.
1: Yeah, in the top end, you know, and and outback South Australia, um, yeah. between a full drive and uh, and Parliament Houses, um, I guess working with communities, uh, collaborating with pastoralists, uh, a range of a range of people across those communities uh, that are connected around economy or culture or just a sense of community and, and their future, um, but bringing that back to the political decisions that are made, support some of those projects.
0: So when you'd finished with that, and I'm interested to learn what you took out of that, but you took that experience in quite a different direction from the like really large macro national issues to something much more community based working with an organisation known as the Moreland Energy Foundation Limited, MEFL.
1: Yeah, so. that's right. And, and look, I think there's a combination, I think, in a lot of environmental programs or, or just generally social change programs throughout the decades and, and throughout the millennia is where that needs to be that balance of uh, responding to things that are seen as inappropriate or unsustainable, um, whether they're political or, or physically and environmental, but also being able to present an alternative, a credible alternative to that. One of the very big questions that we have and we're having still to this day this debate about well does the alternative work and I think that that work is embodied in the Moreland Energy Foundation, which is about demonstrating practical projects on the ground, ways that people in their homes and in their businesses can actually make change, engage people in that process, that it's it's about people using technology um, and about people changing their ways, but also be able to demonstrate that to, the, I guess, the broader political discussion to say that these, these actions are scalable. And I think the benefits of those organisations are really paramount to where the industry is at at the moment and the maturity that we're starting to see in a lot of the Technologies, renewable energy around solar, and and now with batteries in uh, and that that uptake that we're seeing across the uh, across the community.
0: For those who don't know, Moreland's are a city in the inner north of Melbourne. So, in practical terms, tell us just a little bit about what you were doing working for Methyl because it's really at a grassroots level, putting that technology in homes and often in homes. Which otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it.
1: It's done some literature, and if I could segue for a minute, it it stands on the shoulders of a, a quite an interesting history of uh, the energy industry in Australia. If you go prior to um, it, well, the first power station here in Melbourne was along Spencer Street. It was actually established. It was about ten years after the first power station was uh, was set up in, in Manhattan Island by uh, Thomas Edison. So you look about technology transformation. We had that in the late 1890s here in Melbourne. It was largely gas lit. Um, our trams were. Damn. <laughs> Were driven by steam and cable power, and then along came a power station in um, in Spencer Street that started to transform street lighting along Burke Street, and it started to be connected to the emerging suburbs of Brunswick and then Coburg. That infrastructure, the distribution network for that power station, was actually led by by those formative councils. So the Brunswick uh, City Council had an electricity supply department that was started in 1914, and right up until the late 90s, those councils in in the inner city actually provided um, the electricity distribution and retail to them customer. So basically, if you were a resident of Brunswick, you used to get an electricity bill from the Brunswick City Council. In the 90s, or actually in the 80s, there was the Moreland, what was the Brunswick Electricity Supplier, was, was doing some really active programs around low income people who had electric heating uh, were paying a disproportionate high cost for their electricity to provide that comfort during winter in, you know, less than adequate insulation in their homes. They're also looking at this uh, this thing called climate change that was starting to get registered in the late late 80s um, with some international scientific consensus at the time. The programs that they led were, were quite world-leading. They were doing retrofit programs for low-income households. Uh, the first grid-connected solar in Victoria is actually in a West Brunswick home and it was f- through that supply department. And they did some active programs. Can you Imagine 20 years ago, paying back your solar panel on your electricity bill. Great idea. Quite expensive at the time, but they were, they were, programs, they were <laughs> yeah. programs that were being facilitated. Yeah. So on that history, uh, the Moreland Energy Foundation was built during the privatization of the state electricity supply here in Victoria. And uh, we're charged with, with focusing on climate change, but making that relevant uh, with, with what we now call decentralized energy, about making that relevant through energy efficiency programs and renewable energy programs for the community.
0: And that organisation grew pretty significantly in your time there, as I understand it, and the programs it offered grew pretty substantially and have kind of been mirrored elsewhere. Yeah, that's
1: like. right. Look, we, we took the task of, of making it practical to our community, but the, the one test that we had for our team was to say uh, firstly, would you do it? I think that's the, the biggest test for, for projects that are engaging community in, in change is to ask yourself, would, would you do this? Would I take this offer up? Would I put this compact fluoro in my, in my bathroom? All of those sort of actions. But actually to say it needs to be scalable. We need to be developing programs that can be transferred that other communities can adopt or that we can take on a larger scale. We led one of the first uh, Solar Cities programs. There were seven Solar Cities programs across Australia, and we, we led a program that uh, involved uh, auditing and retrofitting of a 1,000 low-income houses in our, in our community. We worked very actively on looking at different business models to establish local co-generation and tri-generation in urban precincts and how you finance and fund larger-scale generation that we're now seeing through really great measures like uh, environmental upgrade agreements and power purchase agreements that start to give a kind of economic scale. Yeah, really great Really great programs that, that are bringing together, I guess, that understanding of the community and the technology, but also bringing together a sort of business model that starts to link in with uh, what are now commercially established uh, businesses, solar providers, battery vendors, energy retailers, and then also starting to work with the networks around this transformation that we're really starting to see.
0: And you were there for 12 years, and then in 2016, you left and made the leap from the community sector into the corporate sector with GreenSync, why
1: did you make that change? Look, um, I had—I'm a serial offender. I've really—I've had the pleasure of um, being able to have a career in things I'm passionate about. But each of those has been important and and contextual. I think you know during the time there's there's remains an important period of approach to advocacy around these issues. There's a really important opportunity to um, or a need, I should say, to educate and engage people. But we're at a point now where what was a movement um, and become a sector is now actually on the edge of being quite a significant mainstream industry. All of the the broader indicators are that, that we're at a point where we can actually scale this out. And so I'm uh, I'm really excited to be a part of that transformation. And I think to bring together what's now at the edges of being a quite a viable business model, but to actually I'll bring some of those insights from, from what is it that actually makes people want to engage? Uh, what are the right things to do? And I think that helps in us actually genuinely scale this so that we don't um, fall foul of being an inappropriate development um, in, in, along the way. So you're now at GreenSync, as we
0: said. Tell us about, in broad terms, what that company is about.
1: What's, what's GreenSync exist for? Well, the, the simple joke when you talked about virtual power plants before is we're, we're really good at turning things on and off right across the grid. Traditionally, we've built that system over the 100 years when I, I talked about that start of the original uh, energy industry here or electricity industry here in Victoria was built around bringing that supply of um, of coal and then gas down to the households and and businesses at the end of it. Ultimately, we're moving into a world where at both ends of our infrastructure, we've got a massive change to the way that we, we generate and use energy. At the big end, we're replacing coal power stations with large-scale wind and with large Large-scale solar and as we know behind the meter we're replacing one in five homes now in australia has uh, solar power most people have energy efficient lighting and so we're seeing rapid shifts at both ends to keep the system going in real time and to respond to variations across the year either in the way we use our energy or the way that we're generating that energy that's variable to increasingly to the weather or through intensity that we have through heat waves that provides big strikes. We need to, in real time, balance this supply and demand. And so GreenSync provides a, a technology that we see as, as kind of critical digital infrastructure to match that existing physical infrastructure for our supply of energy.
0: Yeah, which I think is where the virtual power plant comes in. And after the break, we'll explain how a virtual power plant works.
2: What do the letters CST mean?
0: I'm not across. sorry.
2: I've got no idea. I'll put you out of your misery. CST is Concentrating Solar Thermal. Does that help? No? I'm Davey Cook, and we've come to that bit of the innovators where we tackle your burning renewable energy questions. Burning, in the case of CST, is the operative word. And to help me make sense of it, I've got Arena's Model Gazette They're here for Model. Explains the world. Model. So I know what CST stands for, but what does it mean?
3: So CST, as you said, concentrated solar thermal, is a technology that harnesses the sun's power to to generate electricity. So picture yourself standing in the middle of a huge field of mirrors and at the centre of this field is a really large tower. The role of the mirrors is really to track the sun and concentrate and focus that sunlight onto a central point of that tower, which is called the receiver. That receiver then heats up to a very large number of degrees and we pass through that different types of mediums, a fluid often that can be molten salt and that fluid when it's heated up can either be stored or it can really be used to generate steam and drive a turbine to generate electricity so if you think of that storage component it's really much like a big battery but instead of electrical storage it's more like thermal battery storage and despite how futuristic that imagery really looks and feels and sounds it's really quite conventional the fuel source which is the sun is really just powering a steam turbine to to generate electricity much the same way that we could use gas to to power a turbine and when my kids often ask me daddy what do you do at work the easiest analogy for me to turn to is cst often we go to a picnic or we go to the football and we'll take along a thermos Um, and inside that thermos we we might place hot dogs. You're
2: literally the only person I know that would put
3: hot dogs in a thermos, but go on. I know, but it's fun having hot dogs at at the football and we really heat that thermos up so that we can have hot food later on. Concentrated solar thermal (CST) is exactly the same concept. We're harnessing the sun's power and storing it so that we don't have to use it right now, but we can use it later on and we have that storage component to deliver that.
2: Okay, so how is it different then from a regular solar farm with you know, photovoltaic cells, and why would we want to use it?
3: So there are a number of key advantages over here. The f- first and foremost is because we have integrated battery storage, we're actually developing dispatchable and flexible electricity power, and what that actually does is creates effectively power-on-demand when we need it and when we want to use it, which is different than other sources of variable renewable energy. Secondly, and kind of as we mentioned before, the CST system and the fuel generates a normal conventional steam turbine. And that has a lot of properties which are very valuable for enhancing and supporting grid reliability and security. Um, for example, providing inertia to the system. And lastly, another An advantage of of this technology which is often discussed is the configurability, Uh, whether it's used for peak load or peak generation or for base load power, the components or the modules which are the building blocks of CST can be configured to really deliver those outcomes well.
2: Okay, so where is CST popular and are there any CST projects or plants in Australia?
3: So Globally, there's close to five gigawatts of installed capacity. Five gigawatts is equivalent to powering South Australia and Tasmania at their peak demand. There's around 1.5 gigawatts of CST plants under construction and I'd say close to seven gigawatts again of planned or announced projects around the world. Spain and the USA are leaders at the moment, but we're starting to see CST emerge in places like Morocco, Israel, China and South Africa. ARENA has also played a bit of a role in the CST in the past where we funded companies like Vast Solar and their pilot plant in Jemalong, New South Wales starting right back in 2012.
2: Why aren't there then more CST projects?
3: It's really a combination of a few factors. First and foremost is the high cost. Of the, of the technology, uh, and at Arena we have a lot of experience in helping to drive down cost. For example, our recent large-scale solar round where we pushed down the cost of the technology. Secondly is really the early stage development of, of the technology. So while there is quite a large amount of it, of CST globally, it's still only emerging and the best way to, to use the technology is still emerging. And in Australia itself, there aren't any commercial large-scale plants available and and what this does is it you know brings along risk with it and that risk translates into higher risk premiums and higher costs to actually finance the facility. Another key component is really how the dispatchability and the dispatchable and flexible nature of this CST plant is actually valued and priced within the market. So as of now we're just starting to see the need for dispatchable power in places like South Australia but there aren't clear pricing mechanisms and policy settings to actually drive the need for dispatchable renewable energy Uh, and similarly there isn't a market for inertia so while CST using the conventional steam turbine can actually deliver inertia there isn't a market to value that service. So what I'd say is that CST has a really important role to play in decarbonising the electricity sector whilst maintaining grid security and reliability.
2: So for more information on CST and ARENA's work in this area, visit arena.gov.au forward slash blog. And don't forget to rate the innovators on Apple Podcasts or leave us a review. Back to you, Adam.
0: Okay, let's talk about DEX, the Decentralised Energy Exchange, which was launched officially in August 2017. I want to talk about both what it is and how it came about, but let's start by, in basic terms... What is
1: DEX? Well, DEX is basically envisaging a transactive grid. And so to do that, what we're trying to do is bring together the physics of our energy supply with a way to establish marketplaces, the finance. So bringing together physics and finance. We talk about this world of virtual power plants, the ability for generators behind the meter, people with a solar panel or a battery, or even just being able to turn down some of their uh, energy use through an air conditioner to actually provide value to the rest of the grid. DEX is about exchanging that value across the grid for critical benefits. So we have benefits daily in responding to wholesale market price. If we look to the future and having variable supply through intermittency from whether it's windy in South Australia uh, or as we're heading into uh, the evening with the sun setting, our generation is actually now going to be start to, uh, to be transformed by variability. And so DEX is about how do we bring all of those pieces together um, to actually transact uh, value across the grid?
0: We're still in the early stages of people getting their head around this shift from traditional baseload power, where we have these huge monolithic plants, miles from where most of us live, that generate all the electricity that we live on. We're moving to this system which is much more flexible, and that includes not just having intermittent sources of energy coming in, but also intermittent sources of energy that we're taking out of the grid at times to help us best meet the demand for the grid at the time, scaling down the number of things we're doing.
1: That's right. And in our trade, we call it dispatchable, but it it basically means that we can actually control those units. And what's really revolutionary is the presence of batteries that allows us to store the solar that we're generating on our home roof, to be able to provide it to the grid when it's needed. So just when it's perhaps when we're at work and our solar panels there, it's providing a, a benefit. But if it can be bottled up and actually then dispatched later in the evening or the following morning when there's a high demand. Across the grid, the benefit and therefore the value to the to the household that has that panel is is increased, and certainly the um, the importance for that as a service to the grid is is dramatically increased.
0: So, how did the idea for Dex come about? If I understand correctly, it was sort of incubated in arena's a lab which is kind of its innovation lab is
1: that correct yeah that's right so uh, uh, the arena array lab look it's just been an absolutely fantastic initiative it's bringing together um the industry to to actually innovate and collaborate around developing ideas that we can actually fix fix the grid that we know needs a fair bit of help at the moment there was a series of workshops in canberra last year um and one of the ideas that was led by Greensync was to put together this concept of the exchange uh, we brought together some foundation two networks and uh, a couple of technology vendors and a retailer to basically put together a proposal which was workshopped through the A Lab process and then provided some seed funding Um, and now we uh, confirmed that funding in uh, early this year in February and in the last six months we've uh, developed a couple of key chunks of that that project.
0: Okay and how do you make the leap from having this sort of idea to making it happen?
1: There's the role of uh, that lab is facilitated it's about people collaborating I think it's I think bringing together the energy industry has been fairly uh, politicized it's fair to say in the last decade but underneath that I think there's a increasing growing s- consensus from network operators from retailers and then also from technology providers and, and market participants generally that we need to find a workable model so I think there's very strong grounds for that collaboration currently um, there to find to resolve some issues there's also a range of expertise that we can bring together so you know one of the key drivers that we're seeing at the moment is is technology is driving um, the change. It's doing a couple of things. It's One is it's making it possible because it's cheap, but w- the other is it's making it functionally possible as well because we have the complexity of digital um, control and we have the capacity of uh, energy storage. If we bring on those pieces together, we've got a series of great innovation that's happening across the tech side of the energy industry here in Australia. We've got some great companies like Reposit. Uh, we've got companies that are coming to Australia to, uh, to be able to develop their technology with real customers. We've got Sunverge, uh, we've got uh, Sonnen, a series of companies that are coming from overseas, which is really, really exciting. And we've got a lot of interest now from the larger players in actually turning to say, how can we harness these types of technologies behind the meter as an alternative for large scale generation that those large retail generation businesses had traditionally invested in. So that's, that's really exciting. What Dex does is says, well, to do that, we actually need to establish some foundations to make those transactions work. Otherwise, what we do is have a series of... Technology worlds where one company has a certain certain stack of technology, another one has that, and they each potentially uh, compete on their feature set, but they're not actually at a necessarily a scalable size to actually transform the economy, and they're, they're certainly not one that actually solves the larger grid problems that we're we're facing uh, and that we've seen in, intensely in the last year that has been sort of responded to from the Finkel review.
0: So it's basically an exchange where you bring all these elements together so they're not happening independently. That's so I, right. That's yep. right.
1: And the common there's a couple of foundations. We're like One of the key principles is about open access. So that makes sense from a market's perspective. But from a technology perspective, it says, well, every device should have a minimum functionality where it can actually access and provide service to the grid. And that allows a series of technology vendors to be able to compete, provide function, um, and have minimum access. We've got to do some stuff on the other side of that, though we've got to make that secure. Cybersecurity is obviously a key um, key focus globally uh, now as we increasingly move to the Internet of Things.
0: Can I cut you off there? Sure. By the Internet of Things.
1: Plenty of people will know what that means, but some won't. The simple part of it is, is basically that your fridge or your air conditioner now has an, has an internet address on it, and that gives it a location on the internet. And what that means is that it can be, it can be located and it can be part of one of these virtual power plants because it has, a, has an identity, it can respond to a request um, to provide a service, and it can actually then go through that exchange process.
0: Look, we started this by talking about virtual power plants, and we've touched on it throughout. The whole thing we're talking about here is virtual power plants. But it'd be nice to, I think, break it down and say, so what are the elements at the end result of this that makes up a virtual power plant? How do you define
1: that? Um, Well, I think the, the two things, if we look at why solar and batteries are being so successful, is that we're putting them on what we call behind the meter. We're putting them on at the where we use the energy to avoid importing that energy. And that's driven a lot of the uptake that we've seen in Australia. At the other end of the scale, we're now seeing large-scale wind and solar compete against um, the traditional generation sources. When we talk about virtual power, what we're really doing is saying, how do we harness that generation storage in front of the meter? Now, its value in front of the meter is actually... To, is, is driven by a number of things. One is it's in aggregate. So when the grid needs it, it needs not just my battery or your battery, it possibly needs about 10,000 batteries to respond to a ca- capacity constraint in the thing. So aggregation is really important. So when we talk about virtual power plant, we need to match megawatts virtually by getting your battery and my battery and then another 10,000 to actually form a portfolio. We need to do that in a way that is based around the location. So where those batteries are will mean that they can or can't help out depending on the circumstance.
0: So is that effectively saying they need to be... In the one location, or just that their location matters?
1: Location and time matters, but it depends with the service that they're providing. So if we talk about we talk about this summer and people talking about the capacity of the system, we're literally saying that on a given day, potentially during a heat wave, there is not enough supply in a certain segment of the, the national electricity market, so roughly a state area, to deal with the demand-driven demand driven largely by air conditioning use that's in parallel with our general industry being on at the same time. And we've seen those over last summer, those events. So when we've got that scenario, any battery in that area potentially can contribute to that service. We also have other local constraints in the networks where the physical wire, the physical transmission or sub-transmission segment of the grid can't actually provide enough power to, to where it's required. So each of those, therefore, that drives a potentially a more locational benefit of, of those, um, those devices. The important thing is we're putting together these portfolios that allow for... If we need ten megawatts, we can assemble a, a portfolio of twelve megawatts that gives us a bit of contingency, allows for some of those batteries to be not fully charged, gives options to the portfolio owner to basically drive the most economic benefit, but to meet that sort of the firmness of that um, that service.
0: And demand response is also a part of this, I assume, and that's obviously something that's getting a lot of attention at the moment. And Arena and the Australian Energy Market Operator have a thirty-five point seven million dollar program. deliver 200 megawatts by 2020 that's sort of rolling out now, to what extent is that part of what we're talking about with Dex?
1: It's a huge part. What we'll see uh, over this summer and next summer is these very large uh, virtual power plants that are being built and a lot of the leadership in and the shift from uh, from some of the retailers is to put together large portfolios. And when we talk about them, they're, they're actually comprising of large industrial sites. We might be leaning on diesel generation. We might be being able to turn down pumping stations for water treatment plants, those types of assets that you can actually give fairly quick and fairly lumpy response to a critical need across the grid for yeah. demand response, and Dex. what we're
0: talking about. Sorry, there is yeah. just to be clear, uh, large industrial players volunteering to reduce their use at a time in which the grid is stretched effectively, yeah. and that, and to get a financial reward for Ex- doing so. Exactly,
1: exactly. Yeah, and we're talking about potentially sort of megawatt scale, so very large, large equipment that is able to respond in real time. And, and you're right, the customer gets the benefit of uh, being able to provide that asset. As we move into Dex, what we're doing is actually cha- is basically making those transactions of what are existing incentives. They're formative markets for behind-the-meter services. And actually starting to engender a lot more uh, of the smaller devices and smaller sites so households as they're starting to buy technologies that are internet enabled the digital batteries are able to participate and add value um, over the next couple of years and so those markets are very much the foundation they actually will start us to get the technology right that we'll be able to deliver volume in the next two years and as the sophistication of technology evolves and as we move towards establishing the the DEX exchange it allows us to bring in uh, a lot more participation from uh, small customers.
0: And look, how much is GreenSync looking to be able to deliver by this summer? We're hearing a lot about this summer there being the risk of blackouts, the extent to which that's a real and live risk or something that's already been dealt with through steps being taken depends a bit on who you listen to, I think. Uh, what's uh, GreenSync's? I think, playing a role within that space? I think the commitment was 300 megawatts, is, is that's, that right? Well, which is look- effectively a, a small power station.
1: That's right. Look, we're, we're behind a series of our clients that are working with their customers um, to actually en- enrol them in, in a platform. We provide a, a software platform that a- enables that portfolio control and that response. Uh, and certainly, it's it's definitely in that order. I think we're seeing everyone across the industry respond quite proactively to be able to provide that, that capacity that's needed. There's a, and there's a series of different approaches, uh, demand response programs that we're actively involved in, certainly um, enrolling other, other generations capacity as well into the market and look one thing i wanted
0: to ask you about is when this was announced it was an, when dex was announced it was announced that some of the country's biggest power companies energy australia agl city power were partners and involved what do those partnerships mean and, and why are they necessary i would have thought these are challenging things for big energy companies that are very used to operating in a different world in a world that has worked for them to be moving into this space why is it necessary for them to be part of it
1: I think we're seeing the most exciting transformation in the conversation we're having in the industry. I think the politics are still stuck, but I think in the industry, there's a, a phenomenal shift in understanding that we need to look towards the future. So we're really proud about the DEX collaboration. We've got now over 40 partners. Uh, we've got the big three, uh, Energy Retailers, Origin, um, Energy Australia, and uh, AGL, along with um, some of the, the new entrance organisations like Mojo, PowerShop, and and of Simply Energy who are working to say this is the future. They accept that and they're working to use projects like this to, for them to understand the dimensions of it, um, start to get experience and transition. But it also bringing in the networks who have had a view in sometimes in, in opposition to the connection of renewables because of the impact that they've, they've been concerned about for the grid, who are now starting to say, well, we see a future in enabling renewable technology if we can be at the table. Talk about the physics, you know, then we're here to participate. And then obviously the drive from those technology companies is, um, is really exciting. I think now we're in a world where, where Tesla is the new Apple. It's a, they, they're exciting. Customers want them. Industry wants to come along as well.
0: So what are the roadblocks?
1: We actually have a, a really solid plan now, I think to to step through decks. We've taken um, a view of establishing a prototype platform that's been supported by Arena and that allows us to test the principles of how we do transact and work with those partners to to pressure test the the principles. We've got the partnerships and approach with um, with our partners to actually get the feedback and then take that into into real pilot projects. So for us next year is actually taking this out um, into a minimum of four pilot projects it, in australia we're looking to uh to do another four um uh, that will start to form up by the end of next year that for us gives us an opportunity to test it, it gives us um you know some some on the ground experience and, and allows uh, everyone to start to sort of interact with it um as it evolves
0: let's step back let's look at the big picture and i appreciate there are any number of caveats over this but if i was to say what is the grid going to look like in 15 or 20 years given the rapid change of evolution we're seeing at the moment what can we expect to what extent will virtual power plants be what is driving our electricity
1: system? It will be massive. Any indicator that you look at about the uptake of solar or batteries from a consumer indicator, if you look at the CSIRO's work uh, that was published with the Energy Networks Association earlier this year, about um, 35% of generation will come from behind the meter within uh, about 20 years. We're, we're talking about rapid transformations. I think we know this. The most critical battery in my life is in my pocket, it's on my phone. I think that understanding that that the technology that we're seeing uh, around mobile phones and computing is actually has transformed our society, and the rapid uptake that we've seen in that functionality is phenomenal. That digitization on top of now the the business model for renewable energy being cheaper and better, is extraordinarily potent. Um, and so, the role that virtual power plants play is actually creating basically this virtual battery that allows us to really harness um, that renewable energy both uh, on our homes and uh, you know out in um, out in the outback. Well, thanks for
0: that, Bruce. It really is an incredible pace of change, so it'll be very interesting to see what happens from here, and thanks for coming in and sharing
1: it with us. Thanks, Adam.
0: Next episode, what's it like to be a young woman working in the male-dominated energy industry? We meet Nada Kalam, a 28-year-old woman working with Telstra as an energy systems engineer.
2: I don't think I've ever found a safety vest that's fit me. They just don't come in female sizes. I also have never found safety boots that are suitable for me, unless I want them in neon pink
0: I'm Adam Morton. Thanks for listening to The Innovators, a rewired podcast by ARENA. You can find us and review us and tell us how much you like us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. You can also find out heaps more about renewable energy and the energy transition that's underway by following us on Facebook or going to the ARENA Wire website where there's a stack of information updated daily. It's at arena.gov.au forward slash blog.